The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, politics of blackness, memorialization of slavery, and racial denials in France, with Crystal Murray Fleming. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Crystal Murray Fleming, who's an assistant professor of sociology and Africana studies at Stony Brook University in uh, Long Island uh, in the United States. And she's also the author of a new book called Resurrecting Slavery, Racial Legacies and White Supremacy in France. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Hello, Crystal. Hi, Leopold. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, and uh, as I ask uh, almost pretty much all my guests to sort of warm up uh, the voice and start a conversation, could you maybe start by simply telling us what your current work uh, is about? Sure. So um, I'm working on a couple of things now. Uh, one is a non-academic book about race and racial politics, um, having written Resurrecting Slavery, which I try to make somewhat accessible, but it's still an academic book. Um, I'm now writing more for a broad audience, um, both on issues of race in the U.S. and, well, in France uh, and abroad. Um, so I talk about you know, issues of global white supremacy and understanding connections between what's happening here and what's happening uh, in French politics. Um, aside from that, I have a couple academic projects that are slowly getting off the ground. One of them um, is a follow-up to Resurrecting Slavery. It's going to be about anti-blackness in the French context, again, uh, mainly through the lens of French Caribbeans. There's a lot of interview data that I collected when I lived in France that didn't make it to this first book. And so now I'm going back to that data. And maybe I will do some more interviews as well, but it's already like 10,000 pages of interview transcripts. So I'm just trying to, um, you know, get that out. Um, and otherwise, I have a, um, a project that's somewhat of a departure from some of my earlier work, which is about kind of the intersectional politics of mindfulness and meditation practices and so the, the whole culture around that uh, in the U.S. And soon I'll be interviewing black women uh, who practice various forms of meditation. And I'm interested in sort of, and this is a connection to my earlier work on, on memory and temporality. I'm really interested in sort of what it means for the politics of um, our understanding of time to ask or, or to have people of color focus on the present moment and what that brings up for them uh, if it's different in any way from, um, you know, a white woman, middle class, you know, practicing yoga or meditation. Um, so that's something I'm exploring um, Uh, for now, it's mostly been ruminating on the project, working with some collaborators. Uh, not many sociologists work on mindfulness meditation, mm -hmm. so um, I've, I've been interacting with psychologists and um, other folks who have been looking more at the health benefits of, of mindfulness and meditation practices, and I'm more interested. In, I'm interested in that too, but I'm especially interested in sort of the intersectional politics of that. Um... 
I think I'll stop there because yeah. that's, that's mainly what I have on my plate. No, but it's it's yeah. very interesting because I, I'm thinking here of a friend, uh, Reniza Mawani, who, mm. uh, who, who, uh, who's been telling me for quite a few years now that I was... It was great to do to insist so much on space as I was mm. doing, but time was also a mm-hmm. component that really needed to be considered. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Renisa, that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so, starting to address uh, the work that uh, you're presenting in your book, mm-hmm. uh, Resurrecting Slavery, uh, that's published at Temple University Press, we might want to say. Um, and uh, and also maybe insisting on uh, on something that I was really touched by in this book, which is uh, the appendix, uh, mm. where you you really explain your methodology in a much more uh, sort of less academic, as you were saying, way, and also just the emotional labor put in this book. And I, I really appreciated having this also this, this other um, uh, perspective on the on the on this work and how you kind of as a person as a subject uh, uh, made it happen. So I. I Thanks for reading that. It's yeah. at the very, very, very end. Yeah. So. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying it. I'm saying like people who would read the book really need to pay attention mm-hmm. to this part too. Uh, but so starting uh, uh, st- starting the conversation with something that you already sort of uh, addressed uh, and that you seem to still be working on, which is the context of uh, French society and French uh, structural racism, white supremacy, post-coloniality. I mean, something we, we talked about a few times in this podcast. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a conversation with Nasira Genif Sulamas. Uh, but I think it'd be really good to reintroduce um, the structure and the way maybe they might differ from something like a, from what we might see in the United States, for example. Mm-hmm. And in their way, their, their effects are deployed against, uh, against specifically against black bodies mm. uh, could you could you talk to us about those yeah um to be honest i prefer i will answer your question but i prefer to focus on similarities rather than differences sure. uh first because the typical way of framing race and racialization in, in france is to see how different it is from other contexts um So there's that. And I think it is really important um, sort of to recognize the contextual specificities, but also, you know, I mean, racial violence in the U.S. or um, throughout Latin America or in in Europe. There there are a lot of connections. Um, In the book, I mostly talk about it in terms of, you know, global white supremacy and the sort of global denigration of of non-white people. so I would just start with that. There, mm-hmm. there are similarities, um, one being uh, the valorization of whiteness and the uh, cultures of denial that exist around uh, both denial and somewhat paradoxically justification around violence uh, um, visited upon people of color. But yeah, so there are differences too, um, which, you know, it took me years of you know, kind of spinning my wheels and talking to people and thinking about um, what they had to say about their own lived experience of racism in France. Um, So there are like three um, differences, at least, that I think really matter for understanding uh, what's happening and and has been happening in France. Um, One is the geographic space and distance between um, the French overseas colonies and the mainland. Uh, if you are to sort of just think about, you know, aggregating all of the colonial violence that France has enacted upon um, non-Europeans, the vast majority of it has taken place outside of the hexagon. 
which is not to minimize what's happening within the hexagon. Um, but so there are political consequences of that distance. Um, one of them is that it feeds into this culture of denial of the majority population in France uh, if you know, there are thousands of miles to separate them from um, you know, the, the uh, masses of, of people that have been um, marginalized and, and enslaved, colonized, tortured, raped by the French state. So there's that. I would pause there to say that we also know, though, with the U.S. as an example, that even when there is not that geographic distance, there's also a culture of denial that can build up around uh, that historical reality. So, But in the French case, distance plays an important role in the nature of the denial and how it's maintained. Um, there's also, to come back to the U.S., another difference, um, and it has to do with the instrumentalization of the United States as like the global racial boogeyman. And it's a, a way for many uh, white French, but also some French minorities to minimize uh, racial violence in France, with the United States being sometimes represented as, you know, so much worse than France. And we have no parallel for that in the U.S. case. Mm. We just, uh, you know, we don't. Um, so, so that's an important difference, important uh, first, because... Um, well, it feeds, it's, a, it's another factor that reinforces denial, reinforces revisionism and the minimization of racism in France, but also because African-Americans like myself, um, I think unintentionally in most cases, can feed into um, that instrumentalization of the U.S. Uh, to minimize what's happening in France. You having oh, yeah. a you have a book of James Baldwin on the table. That that would be another yeah. another example of uh, of, of of an African American who actually uh, uh, might be quoted by by mm -hmm. white people in France mm -hmm. as as uh, racism not being quite as violent in France that it might be in the U.S. Paradoxically, yeah. So I mean, I, I was reading uh, from. Um, Uh, one of James Baldwin's uh, books uh, recently, The Fire Next Time, I mm. think it's in that text, uh, where uh, Baldwin says that, you know, uh, the Arab is the nigger of France. Um, but then almost in the same breath, acknowledges uh, the colonial violence that France has enacted against um, sub-Saharan Africans and, and, and others. So there is a way in which even Baldwin with his knowledge of um, the expansive nature of French colonial violence, still, in my view, you know, minimized anti-blackness in France. I don't think he was naive, though, about uh, the particularities of his own life in France. And I think he took pains to be clear that France is not, you know, some kind of racial utopia. It's not a fairy tale. Um, At the same time, yeah, whether it's James Baldwin uh, or even W.B. Du Bois early in his life. Um, Tennessee Coates. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, it's a long tradition. And I think, you know, it's something that I very easily could have gotten swept up in if my whole purpose of being in France was not, you know, to, to study the, the history of, of anti-blackness and, and, and the history of, of French uh, transatlantic slavery, right? So if I had... Um, come mainly as a tourist, uh, I could have very well have just enjoyed my, um, I, I would describe it as a kind of 
I was going to say conditional acceptance, but that wouldn't be right. It's just a, it's, it's the exceptionalism that any kind of model minority gets, whether in the U.S. case, we, we have a similar dynamic whereby if you're uh, an immigrant from the Caribbean um, or uh, these days from Nigeria, you know, they're, they're or not, not even to speak of the model minority status of Asian Americans, right? So there are these ways in which if you're a certain kind of minority, that doesn't represent the, especially that doesn't represent the colonial baggage of, of that country, that you can, you can get treated quite well uh, as long as you don't really care about the people uh, who aren't being treated well. Um, and if you sort of accommodate the politics of white supremacy, you know, this is something that a um, colleague and friend of mine, Vilna Bashi Treitler, writes about in her book, uh, The Ethnic Project. Uh, and she looks at, uh, it's about the United States, but how different uh, waves of, of, of immigrants, whether they're from Europe or from Asia or from the Caribbean, that they have this opportunity to uh, assimilate into a culture of, of white supremacy in, in the U.S. Um, for black immigrants, it only gets them so far because of the politics of anti-blackness. But other groups are able to basically assimilate by buying into that um, uh, the racial uh, hegemonic uh, uh, structure. In the French case, yeah. So as I was saying, I could have gotten swept in to... I don't know, some kind of ecstasy over what it felt like to be, um, you know, an African-American in France. Um, but I didn't because I was interviewing so many people of color. Um, not to say, though, I, I didn't enjoy, uh, you know, um, some aspects of being in France. Uh, it was hard not to, um, but I could maybe get into some of that later. Um, but yeah, so, you know, one of the very, very sad realities, though, has been that African-Americans who could play a really important role in showing some parallels uh, between racial violence here and in France um, have, you know, because of their own experiences of uh, acceptance or, you know, um, I, I don't know, I can't speak for others, that they have downplayed what's happening to French people of color uh, in ways that are, are highly problematic. So I'm trying to go against that tide, which has been, you know, extent for generations now. And I think there are more African-Americans who are beginning to do that as well. Um, I say beginning, but there, there have been voices. They've just been marginalized over the years. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll go back at the end of the conversation if we have time on the current uh, activism also in France that is very much inspired by oh, yeah, what yeah. a movement like Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. might, might do here. Uh, I mean, but maybe, yeah, maybe we'll We'll go back to that at the end, uh, which I think would be very interesting. But staying staying along the lines of um, that you write in the in the book, um, and um, drawing upon the as you say the, the dozens and dozens of interviews that you've been uh, conducting. <laughs> Wouldn't go that far, not thousands. <laughs> well, dozens and dozens, yeah. like, <laughs> uh, and uh, so you're you look in particular at the. Um, at the violent legacy of mm -hmm. slavery in contemporary France, but also about how the conditions of its me of the memorization of mm -hmm. slavery and the political self definition self definition of Black Caribbean French citizens mm -hmm. are themselves being debated between groups of activists mm -hmm. be between those groups and then even with non activists as well. I mean, there's there's a lot of tension in the way. 
this self-definition can can really uh, be made and and how slavery plays a very crucial role and the, the memorization of slavery could play a crucial role in that can you can you tell us about that sure it's uh it's one of the um peculiarities of the French context that attracted me to, to this uh, project uh, almost 10 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long. <laughs> um, but so one, of, so one of the differences I didn't mention to begin with uh, between the U.S. context and, and France around issues of race and um, historical memory is that for um, the memory of slavery in France, the folks that have been most visible in, you know, sort of saying we are French descendants of slaves and, you know, this is our memory and so on, that some of these activists have also distanced themselves from black politics. And, you know, when I was 26, 25, 26 years old, uh, reading about some of this, but from the U.S., I was just mystified. I just... In the United States, if you are a person of color, uh, of, Af of any African descent, and you are out there defending uh, and resurrecting the memory of slavery, you almost, you know, by definition, also embrace black politics. It's very rare for the two to be separated unless you are not from the United States. So if you're from uh, a Caribbean island um, and you embrace sort of a Jamaican identity, or some other West Indian identity, then there, there may be a decoupling of, of black politics from your ethnic identification and your awareness of, of your being a descendant of slaves. So in any case, um, I wanted to figure out what was going on around black politics and some of these divisions I was reading about. And what I found on the ground when I got to France is that the Um, distinctions that are made by some French Caribbean activists, uh, you know, even to the point of saying we are not black and we are uh, French descendants of slaves, that that distinction was not made by the vast majority of, of ordinary uh, French Caribbeans who are sort of outside of the activist movement, um, the vast majority of whom self-categorize as black and, and didn't go out of their way to say, well, we're not that. Um, so there's, you know, sort of a, um, you know, a political... Um, grab for resources between activist groups. Uh, and in the French case, there is a political opportunity structure which allows for folks like uh, this activist group called CM98 uh, uh, to you know, frame themselves as French, descendants of slaves, but to um, not embrace blackness. <clears throat> And part of that has to do with the hegemony of colorblindness in the French case, uh, which is, I don't know, I've named more than three differences now, but it's another difference between the U.S. and France. In the United States, we also have, uh, you know, colorblind discourse uh, and what some folks have described as colorblind racism, for sure, but it's not as hegemonic as it is in France, uh, where it's basically state policy at this point. Um, so that allows for uh, a, a, po a political opportunity for groups like CM98 to, you know, criticize France even, but still frame themselves as French, but say, we're not black, though. We're embracing an ethnic identity, which is a little more politically correct than saying, you know, we are black, mm -hmm. black French, which is even more controversial. Although, um, you know, I think some current movements are 
um, making it less controversial and taboo than it was um, even when I started my project in, in 2007-2008. What's interesting in that word of black is that it's actually the word that uh, many many French people are using. The English like word. The English word yep. of black. So, they, so yeah. those, those people uh, uh, who define themselves as... Uh, Uh, descendant of uh, of slaves, but not black, might say they are black in English, but not noir in French, uh, as in as in black mm. being the sort of mm. a term, uh, a sort of common term that uh, ec- extract from it any sort of political uh, political mm-hmm. me- meaningness and uh, a way for many. I mean, here I'm talking about them, but also a way for many uh, white, white people to also trivialize uh, mm-hmm. someone's identity without, with very much with this colorblindness mm-hmm. uh, acting mm-hmm. on them. So it's uh, an abstraction yeah. from France, mm-hmm. right? So, so you, so it's out of not even using the French language anymore, you know, this uh, recourse to English, to the Anglophone uh, context is uh It, as as an African American, I find it even now years into being familiar with this. It's just, it's so bizarre to me. Mm. It's uh, and here again we might join actually Nasir Aganif with uh, the mm-hmm. exact same thing about beurre being mm-hmm. a, a word not to say Arab. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, a euphemism. It's a yeah. euphemistic, but but it also so so there's the the euphemistic aspect of it, but there's also the U.S. imperialist. Aspect, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, for example, you go to the Fnac in Paris, uh, and you will find in the movie section DVDs. There's an African American section for for movies, mm. very clearly about U.S. blacks. There is no equivalent. There's no French black section for movies. So the predominance of you know U.S. blackness um, in in popular culture in politics, even in the way that folks get labeled. Um, I mean, it is what it is. I was going to say it's atrocious, you know, because I think it's, uh, you know, part of me sometimes even feels, you know, maybe it's it's strange or, 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 or silly, but, you know, sometimes I feel bad that, bad is not even the word. I, I, I feel revolted by the reality that many French people of color could have done the same, they could have wanted to do a similar kind of project as mine um, and would have been blocked. I mean, I've, I've had uh, students and, and folks tell me, you know, who have been caught up in the French educational system, like, I could not do, they would tell me, I could not do a project like this. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they would want to do exactly what I did, they might have had, you know, much better ideas, but to to write in an overtly critical way about white supremacy or about um, anti-blackness in France is uh, <laughs> taboo would be a euphemism, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and so as an African-American, uh, part of what I talk about in the appendix that you, that you mentioned, you know, I have to accept the, the reality of the political um, context in which African Americans in the U.S. more broadly have this hegemonic, you know, cultural influence. But part of what I'm trying to do with that is to, first of all, critique it, um, to acknowledge its problematic nature, and to encourage folks to actually listen to French people of color, um, not always or even primarily through 
you know, the voice of an African-American scholar, whether it's me or uh, a journalist uh, like Ta-Nehisi Coates or um, a literary critic uh, or a writer like like James Baldwin. So um, all of that is not to silence myself <laughs> because I obviously am still speaking <laughs> and writing, but it is to sort of acknowledge that I am part of this phenomenon and this dynamic that uh, is silencing and marginalizing the voices of, of French people of color, and and we need to we need to acknowledge that and be critical of it and do what we can to um, to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, you begin the book with a year, which is a very particular year, which is 1998. Uh, I mean, your first sentence is uh, referring to something that's uh, present in many, many French minds, which is uh, France winning the World Cup mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and um, using this, uh, this slogan of, of, uh, of multiculturalism, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. black blombeur, so mm-hmm. exactly what we were talking about, using, using euphemisms. Uh, mm-hmm. um, to talk about that, and actually, it's interesting that uh, blanc remained blanc because right. <laughs> so we can we could cut back to that at some point because yeah. I don't think uh, I think that's probably the biggest taboo of all, even more than mm-hmm. calling people noir or, mm-hmm. or Arab. It's 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 even more calling someone white blanc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but we might get back to that. But also, 1998 be, being. Um, uh, being the year in which um, uh, Christian Taubira, as a then secretary of um, of no, sorry, so, yes, uh, representative. No. No? Yeah, I mean, she, uh, sorry, she, I mean, so, so in the in uh, more recently, she was a secretary of justice right. uh, in uh, in the French government before quitting over um, mm-hmm. uh, some very very legitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disagreement with the socialist government, uh, but uh, Christian Tobira was the person who drafted the law mm-hmm. uh, that um, uh, in a, that uh, defined and designated uh, slavery as being uh, a crime against humanity. But so you 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 try to deconstruct the fact that uh, in France we tend to speak about this law and the unanimity uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, collected in the votes at the parliament. So mm-hmm. the entire the entire parliament voted for this law, but you're, sp- you're, you're sort of deconstructing the sort of myth of unanimousness uh, through, this, through this law. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, so again, before I started the project and I was just reading more about the commemoration of slavery in France, this 2001 law um, that came to be named after Christian Toubira that came out of mobilizations like the one in 1998, um, which was the 150th anniversary of the second abolition Mm. of slavery, which we have to say France is the only country in the world, as far as I know, to have abolished slavery twice, which Mm. means that they re-enslaved um, folks after having liberated them. In 1804? 1802. 1802, sorry. Uh, which was part of the... Um, the uh, the factors that that led to the the Haitian Revolution mm. and independence in, in 1804. Uh, anyway, so I'm reading about this uh, here in the United States, and on on one hand, I was like, wow, you know, France is the only country in the world to have written a law, or well, at least passed a law like this, saying that slavery was a crime against humanity, calling for an annual commemoration, which is why I came to uh, do my research in Paris. And to go to these commemorations and talk to the people who were organizing them. Uh, so sounds good. 
uh, and certainly if you listen to French politicians uh, talk about uh, the import of that law, uh, it's a lot of, you know, state pro-French propaganda about how great France is for having done this. On the other hand, if you look deeper, as have folks like Doris Garraway, who's another a scholar who's looked at um, the commemoration of, of slavery in France and commemoration of, of, of colonialism, if you look more closely, you'll see, first of all, um, the folks who actually enslaved people are not recognized. So it's a crime without criminals. You also have the reality that there there had been a stipulation in, in the drafts of, of this Tobira law that w- would have called for a commission to, to look into reparations. And that was removed as a apparently as a condition for getting the law passed. So it's a defanged, you know, largely symbolic um, gesture that has, at least in the political sphere, mainly been used to represent France as a progressive, enlightened country uh, where, you know, there are descendants of slaves and, and there certainly were slaves, but, you know, who did the enslaving is whitewashed, quite literally. <laughs> quite literally, yeah. yeah. Um... Well, but so let's talk about reparations because you have an entire chapter of the book dedicated to that and also the the way it even creates conflict uh, within uh, an Afro-Caribbean community, for example. I mean, you you're, you interviewed many um, Afro-Caribbeans in uh, what you call the Hexagon uh, mm-hmm. in continental France um, because... The thing, the thing that's striking is that reparations is always posed in terms of um, in both material terms mm-hmm. and memorialization terms, but never in we never make the jump between the word reparation and the word repair, mm, mm. <laughs> and. I think that's quite symptomatic of the problem because it's somehow, and even in those debates that people have, it's like it, they're talking about uh, how much money would that be, how would it be distributed, mm-hmm. or, or actually insisting more on on education, which brings us closer to this uh, to this uh, problem of reparation, as in re- fixing something, I mean, mm-hmm. which which is always a little bit dangerous uh, mm-hmm. word mm-hmm. as well. But like, it never it's never thought as a way to um, as a way to actually uh, uh, solve a problem it's more thought as a sort of um, in the sort of punitive aspect of like when you have to pay a fine for something mm. so mm. I don't know can, can we address that hmm. I'm sorry that's okay. <laughs> I had prepared a few questions and this one was not part of them no <laughs> no sorry. That's a, no it's a, a good a good question and a, and a provocative one um, what would you be repairing you know so, what did you have in mind? If I could, well, know, I think and then lo- I'll looking at, looking at uh, looking maybe more than reparations that yeah. are that are, uh, you cite maybe in the book, uh, looking at um, uh, like truce and Recon- reconciliation sure. commissions, for example, in South Africa sure. or in Canada, or uh, some things that might be a little bit closer to what I know, which yeah. would be a hypothetical one in Palestine, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, at n- at no point is it established that 
there is a there is a direct continuity of the inequalities that are that are being, right. that, that are being um, so there so when we talk about a reparation right. we feel that we are repairing we're 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 sort of um, having uh, the the descent of the people to whom should be paid reparations mm-hmm. uh, and as a sort of like uh, as a sort of legacy when actually what we should be talking about is is mm-hmm. how those, those very people are being affected mm-hmm. by the legacy of the thing so I, yeah I just yeah, yeah, yeah. the way we frame reparations is sometimes a little bit off because uh, it's I've, in my opinion it's almost always off mm. it's uh, so one of the problems in, in the French case, but it, it is true also outside of France, and it still remains true in the U.S., is that for a large percentage of the population, slavery and colonization are not viewed as uh, having been bad things. <laughs> so, that's, that's, so when you get to the question of, of reparations, repairing what? Uh, in the French case, uh, you know, folks still represent colonialism as a civilizing mission, as something that should be a source of pride. Uh, There's a huge pushback against criticizing colonization. Um, Slavery may be a little easier to condemn, um, but one of the things I noticed in in looking at debates around the memory of slavery is that uh, all too often it's sort of uh, divorced from the colonial context. Mm. So even the fact that there was a Tobira law condemning slavery as a crime against humanity to then, you know, sort of say that without also saying that colonialism was a, a crime against humanity, which has been, um, you know, something more recently in French politics has, has caused uh, some controversy, right? But but th- that wasn't in the text of the law. So um, there's this politics of, 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 of celebrating uh, Western colonial violence that, you know, has the consequence of making it almost unthinkable for, for millions of people that there is anything to repair. Um, so it's it would be hard even to see connections. And I, I talk about this term in, in my book. I use the term uh, racial temporality, uh, which is getting at the connections that are made or not made between the racial past and present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to get folks to think about racism temporally uh, in a culture of, of, of racial denial first, and also in a, in a culture of, um, you know, colonial uh, celebration. It, it, it's to flip the, the moral, it, it's, it's just to, to flip the moral calculus on its head, right? There's nothing to repair if colonialism was great, um, and if slavery's over, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's no connection between what happened then and what happened now, um, when I did the, the interviews for, for my book, uh, largely in 2008 and 2009, and then again in 2010, uh, folks, some folks, here I'm talking about activists, um, who during interviews with me could not say for political reasons that they were for reparations. Mm-hmm. In the intervening years, uh, I've seen some of them begin to... Um, uh, talk publicly about the need for reparations, and I think uh, important books like that of Louis Georgetown mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know discourse in the public sphere, mostly by people of color, um, has be- begun to to make the reparations topic a bit less taboo. But you're you're encountering this this uh, tsunami of 
um, of denial, of, um, of really just uh, immorality on the part of a large proportion of, of not just the French population, but uh, Western populations that have no way of even thinking about uh, there being the need to repair the past because what is it? What is there to repair? I, I had bookmarked a, a page in this Baldwin book that I brought mm. with me. Um, do you mind if I read a little? Because no, uh, I, I was just fantastic. looking at it on the subway and I was like, my goodness. Uh, and, and this is also to, you know, give Baldwin a little more credit. Yes, he, you know, did, in my view and in the view of others, minimize to a certain extent French anti-blackness, but... You know, he was no fool. So this is um, this is James Baldwin writing. So he says, All of the Western nations have been caught in a lie, the lie of their pretended humanism. This means that their history has no moral justification and that the West has no moral authority. I'm skipping down a bit. He says, For a very long time, America prospered. This prosperity cost millions of people their lives. Now, not even the people who are the most spectacular recipients of the benefits of this prosperity are able to endure these benefits. They can neither understand them nor do without them. Above all, they cannot imagine the price paid by their victims or subjects for this way of life, and so they cannot afford to know why the victims are revolting. I mean, you could substitute France for America there. Um, just the inability to understand why these people are not grateful, right? Because the Western posture is to present, once again, these forms of, of violence and, and domination as having been very good for the dominated um, and, and actually an act of benevolence, which is just grossly inhuman but also has been the way that folks have been educated for generations. Mm -hmm. Miseducated, but yeah. Um, so we, you, were, you were addressing uh, colonialism as being the big absent of the conversation about slavery. And so let's absolutely talk about colonialism and let's just not do it in the way uh, French institutions are usually doing it, which uh, is pretty much attributing, uh, first of all, they would not say colonialism, they would say colonization, which is not exactly the same mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they would uh, attribute it to a certain period of time that ends with the independence of uh, various, the various uh, the many uh, countries that were mm. under their rule uh, in the Caribbean, in Africa, uh, in uh, the Middle East, and in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. Um, so let's think instead of colonialism being being um, uh, um, an active process of domination, of uh, systemic domination, and without even talking about, or without about talking yet maybe about um, the, the conditions of life and the sort of the existence of a non-official sub-citizenry for um, mm -hmm. for the French citizens that are part of that uh, whose family come from the were former colonial mm -hmm. subjects. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the actual colonies, uh, the current mm -hmm. colonies of of the French, mm -hmm. uh, the French uh, Empire that does not call itself this way anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think we can do it ev with even more uh, uh, urgency that uh, we saw that uh, 
uh, Guyana uh, was was involved right now with a general strike, uh, as it had happened in 2009, along with Martinique and Guadeloupe. Um, we see that uh, the the Kanak are not far from uh, uh, from perhaps obtaining finally uh, their independence in, in New Caledonia Kanaki. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk let's let's talk about that because I think you were you were specifically looking at. Uh, at them uh, as being also the site of, of slavery, and which mm-hmm. we may we may want to add even of uh, of uh, uh, indigenous population uh, genocide. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, can you can you me- maybe um, just acknowledging the fact that the people who are listening to us might not be very well aware, and I'm afraid to say uh, some of them being French yeah. of this situation. Can you can you tell tell yeah. us about it? Yeah. So uh, Guyana being in South America, um, one of the the French overseas departments where, as you stated, slavery, uh, we could we could add settler colonialism, more specifically about the form of colonialism, um, as well as genocide, you know, um, having taken place there. Um, one of the, what I understand, and, and I'm no expert on in French Guiana, but one of the important differences with that population is that there there is a substantial number of indigenous people who have survived uh, French settler colonialism, um, more so than in uh, the other departments. And so they are present in, obviously, in, in, in current political activism and in the general strike, but also sort of present in contesting the uh, French uh, representation of what happened there. Uh, so they're present in offering alternative um, uh, memories of, of, of French violence against them. And that matters. So, so what's happening, as you mentioned, um, folks are drawing some parallels between the general strikes that took place um, in the French Caribbean in 2009 and what's happening now. But we could understand this also as, you know, just the latest iteration in a centuries-long, you know, series of of revolts. Um, and to go back to Baldwin, I mean, I'm not in France now, but I'm guessing the vast majority of people don't know why people would revolt today in 2017 uh, in this French overseas department. I know that um, I was looking at some of the, the media coverage. Was it called the 500 Brothers, is mm-hmm. it? Uh, one of the uh, activist groups. And, you know, they've uh, they've occupied, I think, were they able to stop a, a shuttle launch? Yeah. Um, so one of, one of the things that happens now uh, in Guyana is that the French have their, their space program, part of it based mm-hmm. there. The, Euro- the European, yeah. The Euro- so... Yeah. So they occupied, you know, some some of the space and prevented a shuttle launching. Uh, but it, it just so so that's important too, specifically for the fact that, you know, you need to ask why does France hold on to these colonies? Evidently, it's for their geopolitical um, uh, purposes. So if you see that they are funding a space program. But the population is underpaid, and that they're being charged higher prices for for food, for you know everyday goods than folks living in in mainland France. 
there is a continuation of the colonial domination and exploitation of you know a population that's largely non-white and to the um, indifference of many French people who are on the mainland and yeah I mean that's my understanding of mm. what's happening and um, what is it 7,000 kilometers or so between uh, that department and 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 Paris um, I, I just again to go back to, to geographic distance it's 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 part of but not only but part of what I think maintains a kind of just indifference on the part of, of mm-hmm. many French people. Like you said, they may not even know where it is, much less the history that's taken place there, and even less so how violent that history has been mm. and still is. Um, so to finish this conversation, as I mentioned earlier, I think I'd, I'd be interested in running something by you uh, when it comes to current um activism in what we call uh, political anti-racism to mm-hmm. kind of differentiate it from the institutions in charge of um, of supposedly fighting against racism, mm-hmm. which in their case is understood as a sort of uh, individual to individual mm-hmm. prejudices. I mean, all, all this sort of very moralizing and frankly useless uh, way of mm-hmm. framing things. Um, but so I think... You know, we'll, I'll publish this conversation before the election just for the mm. sake of it, not that I think that it makes any difference, but, um, but just because I think one way to look at all that is to see how we already lost mm. <laughs> to a certain degree, because I think the, the Front National, if we just talk about them, have everybody in the entire political spectrum using their terms, mm-hmm. their concept, mm-hmm. their questions... Uh, uh, I mean, to, just to, to be a little bit less abstract than that, um, we have the entire uh, uh, political spectrum in France trying to answer to the question, what do we do with our problem of immigration? Mm-hmm. Which means that everybody has accepted there was a problem of immigration mm-hmm. when it has no bas- basis whatsoever, mm-hmm. except if we do have a very strong uh, 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 attachment to our whiteness and to mm-hmm. our sort of national mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. So they already won the battle of mm-hmm. uh, the ideas, the terms, the concepts, the questions. But what I do, what I do see happening, and that actually makes me optimistic, it, it's in the various movements that I'm more or less involved uh, myself, I mean, that I, at least I'm, I'm witnessing, mm-hmm. is that we're doing the exact same thing, and we're winning <laughs> at that. Because when we have a colorblind society uh, like France mm-hmm. actually saying there is no race, but there is anti-white racism, right. then all of a sudden we yeah. had them talk about, one, racism, but even more importantly, white, which, as I say, we would go back to it, uh, which is uh, the always the big absent. And so, so we right. have like really fantastic activist uh, uh, meetings and persons were were uh, really... Uh, bringing inertia to this and and yeah. we and even though we see politicians journalists getting very 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 violent uh, pushback against yeah. uh, the ideas that that are developed in those meetings and everything we see that they're they have to they cannot 
describe what is it we're talking about without using our terms, without using our questions. Mm. So I think I think we're kind of we're we're at the beginning, or I, that's not that's not actually good to say at the beginning because it's completely denying everything that has been done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we are we are seeing something Maybe a critical at the juncture. very moment, yeah, yeah. where where the Front National has been winning for years, we're doing the same. So I, I don't know, does that inspire you? Anything that, uh, uh, that's something that I also, I'm trying to articulate in, in my head. I don't know, I don't know how well. Um, uh, well, yeah, so I don't, I don't want to misrepresent what you've said, mm -hmm. but I think there's a, a danger. Um, and I, I've, I've seen it in some of the discourse of, of a really, um, just awful uh, organization, which, you know, is SOS Racisme, mm. uh, where, you know, they try to portray anti-racists as doing the same thing as overt racists. Uh, I, I've seen it, for example, on like their Twitter, where they uh, compare the discourse and, and practices of uh, French activists of color to the KKK, mm -hmm. you know, and... And, and, and again, I know that's not what you're saying, but I think it is important to be clear <laughs> that uh, the Front National and, and, and what they're doing um, is quite removed from what, uh, you know, folks working against them are doing. So but but to the extent that, you know, um, anti-racists and, and critics of, of, of imperialism are able to, to, to force a change in the public discourse, right? And I think that's the parallel you're drawing. Mm -hmm. uh, is it a cause for optimism? Um, insofar as we can be optimistic about uh, ruptures in the culture, this culture of denial. And um, I think that, you know, to, to draw some parallels between what happened in the U.S. with Trump's election and, and who knows what's going to happen in France. But as you say, you know, there's something that's already happened regardless of the results of the presidential election. Um, we may be at a moment where this uh, may be a critical juncture where the denial can be punctured publicly in a way that has been difficult uh, to do in the past. Um it's, but it's still, you know, and it, so I've, for the U.S. context, you know, there, there have been some, some philosophers and, and pundits who have said, you know, maybe there is an upside to Trump's election insofar as it is mobilizing the left, but also not allowing for folks to be quite in, you know, in as much denial as they were before about the state of racism in the United States. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's worth the price. I think, you know, uh, we are we're in a very difficult circumstance, you know, no matter who's the president of this country, because we've seen the continuity of, of white supremacy and racial oppression. And I think we and speaking for the U.S., I think we would have seen that continuity under a, a Clinton presidency for sure. But it might have been more difficult to call it out. And I wonder if it's a similar sort of thing in France where um the, the prominence of, of the Front National, the rising prominence, is making it impossible for more and more people, though it's still possible for some, but impossible for more and more French people to deny their own contradictions and to deny the existence of, uh, of, 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 of racism and, and, ra and the racialization of French society. Maybe one last point on this, and it's, again, a point of parallel. I think, 
you know, there's a, a way in which the Trumps of, of, of the world and um, Le Pen and others who speak somewhat frankly about their prejudice, um, even if then they try to backtrack and, you know, but, but they're, you know, there's a way in which they are not speaking to something new. They're speaking to the actual racial politics of these respective countries and the actual um, organization of society as it's been structured for the last several hundred years. So insofar as they, um, you know, resonate with, with millions of either white French or, or white Americans in their overtly uh, racist discourse, I think there is something, I, I don't want to be naive about it, but there's something generative about the opportunity that anti-racists have in calling this out. Because the alternative is what? The alternative is a politics that is one of political correctness, of, that is also of racial denial, but from the left. And it needs to be ruptured. It needs to be, uh, I mean, the the anti-racist, you know, organizations that have dominated in France are maybe almost just as bad as the ones that have dominated in the U.S. and that have also played a role in mystifying um, the, the political reality. So I don't know. Godness, goodness knows what's going to happen uh, with the French election. But I think you're right that this is a, a critical juncture. And at a certain moment, if you have folks only recognizing whiteness insofar as they recognize anti-white racism, right, then you have an opportunity to call something out that's been uh, brushed under the rug for for centuries. <laughs> well, Christelle, thank you so much for, again, taking the time to uh, to talk to us about uh, crucial topics and be part of, uh, in, of the dialogue that might have already um, Uh, exist on, on the podcast with um, with uh, various other um, people involved in those questions uh, I can do like on real radio I can <laughs> remind the name of your book Resurrecting Slavery <laughs> Racial Legacies and White Supremacy in France and obviously recommend everyone to to, uh, to read it so thank, thank you again thank you so much for having me Leopold